Hello and welcome to another episode of New Books in History. I'm Stephen Colebrook. Today I'll be speaking with Sarah Sayo, author of Policing the Open Road, How Cars Transformed American Freedom, published by Harvard University Press in 2019. Sayo examines the history of the automobile in 20th century America to explain the evolution of Fourth Amendment jurisprudence and to explore the problem of police discretion. Sarah, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to begin by asking you about your own intellectual background and what brought you to the topic of law and the car. Sure. Um, So I am a legal historian by training. I uh, received a JD at Columbia Law School. And uh, right after graduation, I clerked at the Southern District of New York, uh, which is a federal district court, trial court, um, and then clerked right after that for the Second Circuit, which is the appellate court. Um, And I didn't realize until my clerkships that uh, most of the criminal cases um, in that particular jurisdiction were drug cases which got me really interested in the war on drugs. Um, And so uh, when I realized I also wanted to pursue a PhD in history, um, I was interested in uh, pursuing or researching further the history on the war of drugs, which is a massive topic. Um, And so uh, my advisor encouraged me to find a more manageable uh, scale for the project. And I focused, I decided to focus on the Fourth Amendment because that's the constitutional provision that most uh, uh, relates to how the police police. Um, And so I just started by looking at uh, all Fourth Amendment cases starting from the very beginning. um, And I realized that the number of Fourth Amendment cases dramatically um, increased around the 1920s, which was when um, the mass uh, production of cars really um, infiltrated American society. And when I started reading these cases, a lot of these cases had to do with cars, which is how the research idea started. Great. So could you briefly begin by outlining uh, first the expansion explosion of the production of the car in the early 20th century and how that disrupted normal assumptions about the police Sure. So before cars, um, uh, policing was outside of the major metropolitan areas. Policing was uh, very minuscule in terms of size. Uh, Most towns uh, throughout the United States had only a few uh, sheriffs or constables or officers. Uh, They weren't professionalized. And importantly, they didn't proactively investigate crime. Uh, that was done by private citizens. And once cars were introduced into American society, uh, this is what I talk about in the first chapter, is that they completely uh, wrecked chaos on the streets and highways. There were so many cars, so many drivers, uh, customs were not set, uh, local governments started enacting laws, lots of laws, volumes of laws to regulate um, Um, and bring some order onto streets and highways. Uh, But they quickly ran into an enforcement problem. That is, none of the drivers um, uh, obeyed all the traffic laws, and neither did pedestrians, too. Pedestrians, for the first time, had to be regulated because they were sharing the streets uh, with cars. And so they ran into an enforcement problem where the, the 
the minuscule police forces that did exist could not um, discipline all of the uh, cars, drivers, carts, horses, everything that were on the streets, which necessitated um, building up uh, more police forces, uh, traffic cops, and so forth. Mm. So how did this process interact with uh, the state's police power, so their ability to regulate the everyday lives of people? Right. So the, the... The police power is a kind of a legal term of art. It refers to the sovereign's inherent power to regulate for uh, public welfare um, and health and safety. And so when uh, the mass production of cars um, um, was introduced into American society and wrecked disorder in terms of not just traffic jams, but um, accidents, car accidents were a, a massive major problem. Um, and, um, and so this was the very definition of disorder, um, a threat to public safety. And so local governments passed um, all of these traffic laws um, under their police powers to regulate uh, for public safety. Um, That was, there were a few challenges to their uh, uh, police powers uh, to enact all these regulations, uh, very few, and they were all roundly rejected. And so um, as a matter of general fact, the fact that local governments could pass traffic laws were not so challenged. Uh, They had that right. What was unprecedented was how to enforce uh, the government's police powers to regulate, how to enforce them. And another huge, uh, hugely unprecedented fact was that uh, new enforcement agencies would have to discipline not just those on the margins of society, right? The, The vagrants, the drunks, the prostitutes that Uh, disciplining forces or police forces had paid attention to uh, before cars. Now they they would have to uh, discipline uh, drivers um, and pedestrians, those who were respectable members of society, the early adopters of the automobile. And so that enforcement question, how would these respectable folks in their cars be disciplined, be regulated on the streets to drive, not just safely, but in an orderly fashion. That was a huge change. Mm, Okay. So you mentioned briefly before uh, the use of the Fourth Amendment in the 1920s. Could you just briefly remind us the exact uh, contents of the Fourth Amendment and also uh, the nature of these legal battles and the kind of eclectic range of precedents it created? Right. So the Fourth Amendment uh, protects um, the people against unreasonable searches and seizures um, and uh, protects them uh, from those unreasonable searches and seizures in their persons, um, houses, papers and effects. And so uh, before cars, uh, the way that the Fourth Amendment worked, uh, first of all, it was not very uh, regularly or commonly uh, litigated. Um, and secondly, uh, the way that the law uh, viewed the Fourth Amendment was that it required a warrant if the state wanted to search or seize things in the private sphere. Um, private sphere doesn't necessarily refer to private spaces. It refers to the sphere in which individuals were thought to have um, their uh, rights to be free from state regulation. And the Fourth Amendment articulated what those uh, um 
areas were, there were persons, houses, papers, and effects. Um, and one question that I, I often get is, what, what about persons? Because obviously, um, people can be seized, um, or another way to put that is people can be arrested without a warrant. Um, and this is where I um, elaborate exactly what the public-private uh, framework means in um, American law. Um, so a person is within the private sphere. So if a person is going to be arrested or seized, uh, the government needs a warrant, um, as the Fourth Amendment states. But the common law also recognized that there are public reasons. Uh, there are reasons for the public's interest where a person has to be arrested without a warrant. And those are instances where um, an officer sees um, a crime happening right before his or her very eyes. And there's no time to get a warrant uh, because a person might flee. And the person's right there creating a disturbance in public. And so what the common law said was for the public's interest, a, a private person would then be classified as under the public category. And in those public interest cases, uh, the government does not need a warrant uh, to make an arrest. And so the arguments over Fourth Amendment is, is this a public sphere issue, in which case a warrant um, is not required? Or is it a private sphere uh, matter in which the government does need a warrant to uh, search or seize or make an arrest. And the way that the car um, uh, undermined this or put some tensions in this t uh, framework between public and private is that they were a little bit of both. Um, people viewed them as their private property, right? They own their cars. Um, and they also experienced um, individual autonomy and freedom, which is the very uh, essence of the private sphere in their cars. And you see this in American culture throughout the 20th century, from songs, films, literature, um, to advertisements, where car is celebrated as this freedom machine and thus within the private sphere. Uh, but then on the other hand, and at the same time, uh, cars were um, under the public sphere. Uh, for the very reason I, that I mentioned five minutes ago, they needed to be regulated for the public's interest. Uh, they created a great uh, chaos and disorder on streets. Uh, go local governments um, obviously could regulate them. Uh, their uh, public powers, their police powers to regulate them were um, not strongly challenged. Everybody agreed that they had to be regulated. So cars were under the public sphere. Um, and so the, uh, when Fourth Amendment cases um, on the topic of cars came up, there was a lot of uh, debate over whether cars should be considered public or private under the Fourth Amendment. Mm, okay, so how did uh, the Supreme Court react uh, to this Fourth Amendment litigation? Before I get to the Supreme Court, uh, let me just briefly talk about how the lower courts and other state courts um, address the Fourth Amendment uh, question with respect to cars, because all of those cases had to be filtered um, and um, go up uh, to uh, the higher level courts. Um, so the courts throughout the country um, really grappled with is are cars private and thus a warrant required if the police want to stop and search cars or are, are they public and thus the police don't need a warrant and I would say that most courts uh, 
decided that they were uh, classified as public because the government regulated them. And because they were public, uh, the government also did not need a warrant. There were vocal dissents uh, about this, uh, but on the whole, um, the the government won. When the case... um, or when the issue came up before the Supreme Court uh, for the first time in 1924, it was ultimately decided in 1925 in the case Carroll versus United States. Uh, the, the Supreme Court really grappled with this question too. Uh, the Chief Justice at the time was Chief Justice Taft, who was um, very traditional in his outlook about rights. So if, if an individual had private rights, then the government could not regulate. Um, and he he bought into this public-private framework too. Uh, but he also recognized the need to regulate cars and also to police cars. Um, and so he really grappled with this distinction between uh, public and private when it came to cars. And what he ended up doing was something completely unprecedented and new. What he said was, yes, we recognize, the court recognizes that uh, people have uh, rights in their cars and the government or the police can't just stop anybody arbitrarily whenever they want to on the road. But at the same time, cars are mobile. People can drive them in, in and out of jurisdictions where the police don't have authority to stop them at the time that was the law. Um, and so the court wanted to recognize the fact that cars had thoroughly changed how crime was being committed in the United States and um, the, the powers that the police had to have to respond to that situation. And so what the court said uh, was that automobiles would be treated differently. And this is the automobile exception, that when an officer has reasonable or probable cause to believe that there's evidence of crime in the car, then um, a warrant would not be required. And this is completely new um, in, in the law for several reasons. Um, because for one thing, uh, the court didn't justify the automobile exception based on the exigency of automobility. Um, but the rule wasn't that if the officer doesn't have time to get a warrant, then the officer doesn't need to. That wasn't the rule that the court established. The rule that the court established was if the officer has reasonable or probable cause to believe that there's evidence of crime in the car. Traditionally, that was a question for judges. Judges would decide if there was probable cause uh, to do a search, and then they would sign the warrant, and then the officer would go execute the warrant. What the court was doing for the first time is saying, now police officers, you can decide if there's probable cause, that there's evidence to be searched. And that was a recognition um, and um, permission for police officers on the road to decide for themselves whether they had reason to stop and search a car. Um, And that was uh, basically the court's blessing uh, of police discretion under the Constitution for the very first time. Mm. So what was the uh, effect of this expansion of discretionary powers for the police on uh, policing as a whole in the first half of the 20th century? It was, um, it would greatly expanded the police's power. Um, And commentators right after the court handed down its decision 
1925 recognized that this would be the um, effect of the court's decision, that basically that the roads would be uh, subject to the police's discretionary power uh, to stop and search anybody. Um, and the if you think about the, the time when uh, this decision was handed down in 1925, uh, the police were still... Uh, uh, professionalizing uh, a lot of the patrol cars. Um, uh, I actually, all of the patrol cars were not really identified as patrol cars. Um, the police cars in, for example, in New York City, probably one of the most professionalized forces in the country. Police cars in New York City only um, had the initials PD painted on the side of the cars. Um, they were not uh, painted in a distinctive color the way that police cars today are. So if uh, somebody was driving down the streets and a police car wanted to, a, a policeman in his patrol car wanted to stop someone, uh, there really was um, very, uh, it would be very difficult at the time for ordinary uh, citizens to know whether the police would be, uh, it was the police that was stopping them or some highwayman that was stopping them. Um, and so it really put ordinary uh, drivers in a very precarious situation, especially at nighttime, when, especially when they couldn't tell if it was a police or a highwayman that wanted to stop them on the, car, uh, on the roads. Uh, so how uh, did Fourth Amendment litigation interact with the automobile during the 1930s and 1940s? So when I look at the timeline of Fourth Amendment cases brought, um, so that, like I mentioned, there was a huge upsurge in the 20s and also 30s when uh, the police's power to stop and search cars were contested. And um, Almost all of those cases resulted in uh, the police being able to stop and search a car without a warrant. And there was a slight dip in the 30s uh, because there was um, kind of an understanding that the police can um, stop cars without a warrant, um, but not too much. Um, and so there are more Fourth Amendment cases in the 30s and 40s than ever before, but for the most part, it was um, accepted and there was a consensus that the police could police cars. Hmm. Okay, so how um, did civil liberties groups respond to this huge expansion of uh, police discretionary power, and particularly thinking about groups like the ACLU? So that is the, uh, the find that really surprised me when I did this research. Uh, the ACLU, um, which is... Uh, which had been dealing with Fourth Amendment issues from its very founding um, in the early 20th century. Uh, they were on the forefront of this because uh, it, they, they realized that a lot of their activists had been um, unlawfully uh, policed. Their, um, their papers were searched, their rooms and offices were searched without a warrant, um, and they were on the forefront of uh, uh, fighting against Fourth Amendment violations um, in the 20s and 30s. When mm. I went to the ACLU archives to see if they were getting any letters uh, complaining about the police uh, in the 50s and 60s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, I did find a folder, a small folder. Uh, I think it was labeled due process cases. 
of complaints about the police when they stop people in their cars. And when I read all of these letters, they were letters complaining about how the police treated them. And people wanted to know, can the police really stop me for no reason at all? Um, did they arrest me when they stopped me for no good reason? Um, did they violate my rights when they yelled at me and treated me without dignity and respect? Um, and people write um, pages about their unpleasant encounters with the police on the road. And the ACLU, to all of them, replied, the police, as long as they didn't harm you physically, um, and if you violated a traffic law, then they can do what they did uh, because it's within the definition of reasonableness. And there's no constitutional violation um, in this matter. And so the AC, even the ACLU um, understood that because cars were under the public sphere of regulation and policing, only the standard of reasonableness governed what the police could do in that situation. And the standard of reasonableness was capacious. And it, it allowed the police to uh, treat citizens roughly or to speak to them in a, um, in a disrespectful way, as long as they didn't arrest them for, um, uh, for uh, no good reason, or as long as they didn't um, touch them. And so the, even the ACLU understood the Fourth Amendment with respect to cars under the public-private framework. Mm. Okay, so um, just kind of moving forward to the 1960s in particular, we have this image of the Warren Court during this period of uh, sort of curtailing uh, the state's police power, um, particularly through uh, civil rights cases. Uh, how does uh, integrating the story of the automobile uh, upend or challenge some of those narratives or add to them? Sure. So we have a traditional conventional account of the Warren Court. The Warren Court was one of the was probably the most liberal court in American history. Um, they're known for uh, landmark decisions like Brown v. Board of Education that de desegregate public schools um, and stood for the proposition that separate uh, but equal is not, um, does violate the Equal Protection Clause. They're also known for their um, criminal procedure decisions. Um, a lot of people, um, even non-lawyers, uh, know that um, the Miranda decision, for example, Miranda versus um, Arizona, uh, they're known for the Miranda warning is something that everybody knows. They're also known for the Gideon case, which uh, gives uh, indigent defendants a right to a lawyer paid for by the state. Um, and so these landmark decisions kind of um, are at the forefront of, um, of our historical memories of the Warren court. Um, the thing that I point out in my book is that all of the landmark criminal procedure cases um, under the Fourth Amendment, they don't have to, they don't deal with cars. They deal with a private sphere. They're private sphere cases. And the most preeminent private sphere case was a home invasion case where the police went into someone's home without a warrant and searched it. Um, this is a classic pu private sphere 
a violation. And these were the cases that the ACLU brought as well. Uh, the ACLU brought, brought several of these cases, one of them being Matt versus Ohio, which was um, the Fourth Amendment case that started the Warren Court's due process revolution. And so those were the cases that we've always had in mind. What I looked at were the car cases, the thousands and thousands of uh, car cases that greatly outnumbered the, the landmark cases. And it was these public sphere car cases where the courts, including the Warren Court, when they had these cases before them, it was these cases where they allowed a lot of discretionary policing. And so when you uh, put together these car cases with their landmark cases, you see this public-private framework informing the Warren Court's criminal procedure decisions as well. So it was in the private cases where they were um, pushing um, against the police and creating individual rights to bring lawsuits against the police. But it was in the public sphere car cases where they were allowing the police a great deal of power. Hmm. Okay, great. So um, just bringing the narrative forward, I guess, uh, into the present day, you mentioned your own experience uh, clerking and how that sort of exposed you to the, the war on drugs. What's the kind of long-term legacy of this uh, in our kind of contemporary moment where we're being more critical about the carceral state? So the... There are connections between this history and the present. Um, What the Warren Court did was to create a procedural right that whenever the police violated the Fourth Amendment, whatever evidence that they got from that illegal search cannot be used in a prosecution. And so this incentivized criminal defendants to bring challenges under the Fourth Amendment against the police uh, in the case with the hopes that the evidence can't be used against them and then um, the case against them would fall apart. Um, what the court didn't anticipate was that uh, drivers, people in their cars, would challenge the reasonableness of police action against them. And the, right after the Warren Court, uh, litigation in the Fourth Amendment exploded once again, even more so than in the 1920s. This was kind of the second bump of Fourth Amendment cases. Even though criminal defendants were bringing thousands and thousands, hundreds and thousands of challenges against the police under the Fourth Amendment, most of those cases were resolved in favor of the government. But what the criminal defendants who brought challenges against the police did accomplish was that they forced courts to articulate rules governing what the police could and could not do. These were procedural rights. The police had the substantive power to police cars, but courts would now be in the position to oversee and regulate uh, whether uh, how the police conducted themselves uh, was reasonable under the Fourth Amendment. Even if defendants lost most of these cases, uh, they uh, exercise a procedural right to challenge the police. And over time, all of these court cases resulted in what uh, legal scholars call modern, the modern regime of criminal procedure, which is basically rules and rules that govern how the police can police. Um, and what I show in uh, my book is that actually we've always looked at these uh 
court decisions as individual procedural rights, rights that um, are given to individuals and rights that articulate what the police can and cannot do, right? Um, When I looked at uh, police textbooks, it was fascinating to see that the police saw these same criminal procedural rights as telling them what they could do. Uh, mm. If the court said um, you can't uh, you can't uh, stop a car um, unless you have probable cause that someone's committed a crime, then the police see that as well. Uh, the uh, traffic violations count too, and so you can pull over a car for a traffic violation. And everybody violates traffic laws because there's so many of them. Right. And so they've, they, they basically reinterpreted not or they've seen the other side of the coin, I should say, um, where criminal procedure rights can be seen as telling them these are things that you can't do. But there's a whole bunch of other things that you can do. Um, and so what we've come is you have we've come to the situation where we have so many traffic laws that everybody violates them, which increases the police's discretionary um, powers to selectively enforce the laws. You have search and seizure laws that um, have allowed a great deal of discretionary policing. And all of that coincided uh, with the war on drugs um, in the 1980s, where uh, there's been a push, there was a push to uh, really focus on uh, traffickers who were using um, the streets or driving the highways uh, to uh, distribute uh, drugs. And so all of those uh, trends um, and developments coincided, and you had um, a systematic policy of training um, highway patrollers to look for certain types of people who fit a certain profile. uh, They called it the drug courier profile, uh, to stop them on uh, the highways Um, and to search their cars for drugs. And those drug career profile characteristics were heavily racialized and class-based. And what what they realized was that if they looked at enough cars, they would find enough drugs. Um, and so this played, this was one uh, hugely contributing factor to, uh, to uh, the war on drugs uh, strategy to, um, to prosecute, investigate and prosecute drug dealers. But they were, most of the, most of the cars or the drivers that they found were uh, not the major drug dealers, but the people with uh, small amounts of drugs in their cars. Um, and so this was a contributing factor to what we see today with um, the era of mass incarceration um, and the war on drugs. Mm. Okay, well, that's all been very fascinating. Thank you for such an interesting conversation. I think we just have time to ask you one more question, which which is what are you working on now? Well, I am looking um, at the history of conspiracy laws in the United States um, the United States has uh, probably one of the most expansive criminal conspiracy liabilities in the world, uh, which uh, was fascinating to me. Um, and I, I wanted to delve into this um, 
topic um, in a way that's similar to my first book. So my first book uses the history of criminal procedure and the Fourth Amendment to tell the history of the police and the police power. Um, uh, similarly, I wanted I want to look into conspiracy laws as a way to tell the history of prosecutors in the United States. So we'll see. Mm, well, that sounds very interesting. And I very much look, look forward to seeing the results of that research. Thanks again for being on the program today, Sarah. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me.